Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, and our guest today is Andrea Owen, an author, mentor, and certified life coach who helps high-achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, and to choose courage and confidence. Dead. She's helped thousands of women, myself included, manage their inner critic and create loving connections and to live their most kick-ass life. This is Andrea's third visit to the Bubble Hour. You can search our uh, archives on Blog Talk Radio or iTunes for her name, and you will hear her earlier interviews and her personal story. Andrea is the proud author of 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, a BS-free wisdom to ignite your inner badass and live the life you deserve, and her second book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, is due out in January 2018. Andrea, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe I've been on here twice before. I think my very first time, it was way earlier on in my sobriety. I'd be even curious to go back and listen to that one. Yeah, you should. It's a good one. It's, you talk about like relapsing in your pantry. Oh my God, <laughs> that's such a painful story. I think that was the first time I had told that story publicly. Well, um, it was, was it vanilla extract or cold medicine? It, or was, both? it was vanilla extract and NyQuil. Right. Okay. So I have to tell you, I'm so glad you told that story because it, I I think of you and, and that podcast every time I reach into my pantry for vanilla or it just like, for me, it highlights the dangers of things that we take for granted. So actually your story (laughs) resonates years later. Oh my gosh. I never thought I would be that person. You know, it's like, those are the things we think about. Like I never thought I would be that person. And there I was that person. Right. Wow. And then look at what you've done since. So here's my take on you, Andrea. I feel like, and you and I haven't met except virtually, and um, but I feel like we're neighbors, which, you know, we're thousands of miles apart. But anyway, we were neighbors. I know, me too. Life would be so much more exciting. But I, I picture you as that friend that we all have who's like tons of fun and high energy and like you dance in your kitchen all the time and, and like you're a really good dancer. I've seen videos. And um I feel like your personality being like very bubbly and lighthearted makes the rest of us sort of underestimate your wisdom a little bit because your approach is like fun and no BS, but then you drop these truth bombs that just land exponentially because you first get people like to that place of feeling really honest and and down to earth. So Mm -hmm. I feel like you come at like really 
cerebral ideas from a more from a different place in your brain and therefore a different place in our brains. And I think it's a gift that you have, really. So, have, did you discover that as a particular effectiveness that you have yourself, or is it just you're doing what comes naturally to you? Uh, well, I so appreciate you saying that, and it, I kind of just had an epiphany near head explosion when you said that because you know, to answer your question. I, for years, felt really, I don't know if what the right word is, but I struggled with people not taking me seriously because I naturally have that personality that is, I have a lot of energy and, and I'm bubbly and, and easily approachable and I make friends with everyone. My mom jokes and says that I would make friends with the devil himself. And <laughs> I just, again, just natural gift that I have. So people tend to... And I think probably the way that I look too, it's always, it's always been my identity. I've always been like known as the pretty one. Like I wanted to be the smart one. I wanted to be, you know, <laughs> always wanted to be the smart one because I didn't earn this face, you know? And, and so I, right. I, it was, it was hard for me and I, I really fought against it and tried to be the smart one and overachieved and, and did all these things in order, just dying for people to take me seriously and to uh, felt like I mattered. And you just, what you just said was so helpful because it's eased up as the years have gone by and I've worked on my own worthiness. And, but yeah, I do. I think that it almost is sort of, um, people don't expect it from me, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe it's even more sweet when, when it does all come out and helps people. So true. I think that's really true. And I, I feel like it's received differently. That's the thing that blows me away is that, you know, we can all sort of get into our, I'll go into my Oprah deep voice, you know, <laughs> like we're watching Super Soul Sunday and we're open and we're ready to receive. But then we, you know, get up from the couch and go back into our other mode of existing and forget. Yeah. Like there's sort of a reserved brain space for higher learning. And I feel like you reach into the everyday and sort of challenge people to, to really live it and to cross those lines. So I love that. Before Thank we you. start talking about your book, though, I want to just ask you to tell us a little bit about your story because two things that are a big part of your story are actual chapters like your your book identifies 14 behaviors that hold us back from happiness and and so mm-hmm. two of those I think you said are really particular to your own experience with alcohol because you've been sober for how long now six plus years six plus years me too we're twins and yeah. um and and so even though you, this book isn't about recovery specifically from alcohol addiction, it's about recovery from however those behaviors show up for us. Because it isn't always alcohol. Sometimes it's relationships and sometimes it's shopping and, you know, sometimes it's, I don't know, like baking cookies at Christmas. So let's talk about two of those behaviors, numbing and isolating, and how that showed up in your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so definitely I'll start with numbing because it, 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 in my mind it's the most obvious. And I think probably like a lot of your listeners, I grew up in a family that it, it, they were great. There wasn't any outward abuse. I wasn't physically or emotionally abused in my family. Um, however, my parents did not have the language around talking about any kind of feelings or hard stuff that that happened I remember I was probably in an elementary school maybe fourth or fifth grade and a family friend of ours 
um, had committed suicide. And it was actually the wife of my dad's best friend, who was my dad's best friend for decades and decades and decades. And he came home and I remember standing in the hallway and looking down the hallway and my dad, I witnessed this whole thing and it still even makes me emotional to think about it, but burned into my memory. My dad walked in the door from work and told my mom the story of what had happened. And he said, you know, Barb killed herself and he broke down. And it was the first time I had ever seen my, my father cry. And I remember running to my bedroom and hiding and like getting in bed and crying because I mean, if anyone's seen one of their parents, I think maybe even especially your father cry, it's a very emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And nobody talked to me about it. They knew, you know, that I knew, and I knew this woman. And it just, it's, I mean, that's just an example of, of, it was a great opportunity for them to talk to me about suicide and grief and pain. And they didn't know that it was important and probably didn't think that I was old enough to have that conversation. And there were a couple of other instances as I grew up that were like that, where I was afraid of big feelings. And uh, my mom used to basically, it was, it was known that we had one feeling in our family and that was happiness. And if you had any others, you needed to go in your room and and do those on your own and come out when (laughs) things were okay again. And my mom, both of my parents had a really hard time with it. Um, My father, who's since passed, but has struggled, he struggled with anxiety and depression for the most, most of his life and actually had 20 plus years of sobriety himself before he died. And all that to say, I entered my, I entered my late teen years and early twenties with severe codependence because I was. I didn't know how else to cope with life. So I thought that chronic control and trying to take responsibility for everything in my life, my life, including everyone else's feelings and tried to control everyone's feelings and, and, you know, run around like crazy. Anyone who's struggled with codependency knows what that feels like. And that was my life for a long time. And then I was a severe love addict through my twenties. I made men and relationships, my higher power. I was obsessed with whomever I was chasing at the moment. I was in a very long-term relationship where I cheated, um, as did he. I think we cheated for different reasons, he and I. Mine was because I was so desperate for love and intimacy and connection. And it was at the same time, those things, love, intimacy, and connection, were the things that I wanted the most in life, but the things I was the most terrified of. And I didn't know how to contend with that. And of course, all of this is in retrospect. It wasn't something that I was conscious of at the time, but it manifested as completely numbing out through men and relationships. And uh, my drinking at the time during my 20s, I was a binge drinker, but I could take it or leave it. I wasn't, I didn't obsess on alcohol because I didn't need to. I was obsessing on other people. I was obsessing on my relationship and trying to fix it. I was obsessing on (laughs) whoever the guy du jour was. And that's what that looked like. And I also isolated and and hid out because I didn't know how to, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the language to tell my friends and people that I cared about what was actually going on. And and a lot of ways I was still really unconscious, Jean. Like I didn't, I, I was, I was a blamer. I blamed all of my struggle and heartbreak on everybody else. If everybody would just get their shit together then we would all be happier. Not just me, they would be too. They just didn't, they just didn't know it yet. So that's really how, you know, what numbing and, um, and of course, like there was some, 
I, I've heard them called like shadow addictions, like spending definitely was one for me. And now mm-hmm. today, as we're recording this, I have to watch out for planning. Planning is my shadow addiction that I love. <laughs> I love to plan. I love to make lists. It makes me feel like I have some semblance of control of my life. So now I know. Now I'm very conscious and aware of when that's happening. So that's kind of like a snapshot of, of what, what the last you know, 30-ish years looked like for me. Well, I'm glad you brought up the actually the issue of infidelity. I mean, we don't talk about this in the book a whole lot, um, but I want to mention it quickly because it's becoming really apparent to me the more I do this show and the more I hear from listeners that that is a part of a lot of people's recovery story from one side of it or another that they tend not to feel they can talk about because, first of all, they don't relate it to their addiction or behaviors Mm -hmm. they don't see that it's all part of the same behavior and that it's very much a symptom of codependency because you're always defining yourself as others see you and and the other really hard thing about it is that you know a lot of what we talk about in recovery is telling our own story but um when people are sharing about infidelity it's not just their own story it's a whole bunch of other people's story because it touches a lot of lives yeah so i think it's a shame that a lot of people carry and in order to protect the people they love they carry it so deep and so buried that it's really hard to work on healing that because it's it's either they don't realize it's connected or they're too invested in the protecting of secrets and stuff and so it can I really think it takes a lot of people down and um oh, yeah. we were just saying here you are mentioning it casually <laughs> because yeah well, it took me a while it, it's important. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will well, and, I and be honest like love addiction is the one story of my entire story that is still the hardest for me to tell and I still I you know I can talk about my drinking story and and even my codependency and, and and my eating disorder which I sort of like went in and out of in my 20s depending on if I was in crisis or not but the but love addiction and the infidelity I, I, I did a podcast episode on it. And when I was telling the story on my own podcast, I was like wringing my hands, my hands were sweating, my armpits were tingling. It was I still had that visceral physiological thing happening of shame. And I know because I do this work in the world, and I know immediately what is happening in my body, and I'm able to move through it. But it was still extremely uncomfortable for me to tell. And I'm not even with the person anymore. <laughs> that I was unfaithful to, but it's there's still I think this stigma I, I want to say, especially for women, because men, you know, we, we see it all the time, but for women, you know, we're supposed to be the ones who can have better control. And I'm, you know, using air quotes over here. And, but I totally agree with you. I think that it is a, is a lot, it's all connected. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to talk more about it if, if you want to. Well, let's, let's keep it in mind as we move through talking about your book, because your book is great. And I really want to make sure that we hit on it because honestly, this, uh, this is what blew my mind as I was reading your new book is that you basically took six and a half years of my recovery and your recovery, all the things I've learned over these six past year, six years in the past, and you put them into one book. And I'm like, Holy Heck, if I had this book when I started, it would have made things a lot easier. Um, I feel like it would it would have become that dog-eared manual that I just you know filled with pencil marks and mm-hmm. because uh, so many of my like huge aha moments in recovery are these behaviors that you've identified in your book. So um, 
to be honest, though, I didn't know that when I picked it up and the title is how to stop feeling like shit. I was like, oh, this will be cute. You know, this will be like a cheeky, <laughs> confetti on the cheeky front. little. <laughs> yeah. But I also kind of knew like, well, you know, Andrea is like, she's funny, but she's like, she doesn't waste your time. So um, anyway, by page three, I was like, oh, okay, this is actually serious, meaty stuff. Like this book is really going to help people. And, um, and then as I got into it, I just, I laughed. I identified, you know, what you've done, you've like disarmed us and kind of got your reader into that place of we're going to get comfortable and real. And you even say like, put your hair in a ponytail because <laughs> roll up your sleeves. Um, but you, you don't go into that. Um, not only do you not go into that zero F given kind of zone of like, you know, you're saying how to stop feeling like shit, but not quit thinking about things you're you in fact you actually kind of point out the dangers of that cynicism on steroids approach so if that's not the zone we're in where is it like tell us about the approach you take to truth telling and encouraging shame and encouraging change (laughs) that's that's a great question and I'm glad you you brought that up about how this isn't well the way I describe it is this isn't a book about here's all the 14 ways you're doing life wrong. Now go and fix it and change. This is a book about here's all the things that you're doing that are making you feel super crappy that we all do. So let's be really aware when we're doing them. Let's be really aware of what the triggers are that are making us do these behaviors so that we can get out in front of it faster and choose other behaviors that actually align with our values that actually make us proud of the people that we are. Because, I mean, I'd be totally lying to you if I said, I've got this all on lockdown, Jean. I don't do any of those behaviors anymore. Like, come on. We still, we we will forever compare ourselves to other people. We will still tangle with my, my big nemesis is control. And I, um, and just even recently, because one of the chapters I write about is the imposter complex. And as I was writing the book, I was like, I think this might be one of the ones I really don't struggle with. And then as this second book is coming out, I had the thought where I said to myself, well, now I think I'm actually a legitimate author because I have two books out. The first book very well could have been a fluke and I just got lucky. But now I think (laughs) it's like, that's lunacy, right? Like (laughs) That's literally imposter complex. (laughs) Total imposter complex. So it's like, I can laugh about it now. And, and again, it's the win I want for people that read this book and actually do the work because it isn't just about reading it just like recovery, like sobriety is one thing. Recovery is a completely different thing. And it's, a, it's really about knowing when you are doing it so that you can choose different behaviors that feel better. That's the win. And you point out that all of these behaviors are normal. They show up for a reason. You know, you, you do totally. them either as a child or you learn to do them at some point in your life to get you through a situation that you don't know how else to get through and no one's showing you. So there's sort of a, a normal human reaction to adversity. But then yeah, it works until it doesn't, right? I mean, where have we heard right, that yeah. Same with all right. the behaviors. So, and how do you know then when they go from being a coping skill to being a problem? Is there a line that they cross? Yeah, and I, I think I, I talk about that in some of the chapters, like, for instance, overachieving. I think that many of us who can identify as being an overachiever, it has got us to where we are. It has got us the promotions. It has got us the six-figure salaries. It has got us, um, you know, the honors on the dean's list in college. And, and somebody who really struggles with control, you probably want that person on your team at work because they're going to be a really great leader. And, 
get stuff done, right? So I th- when it becomes a problem is when it starts to take over your life, when it starts to, the way I also describe it is, and backing up, the reason that I wrote the book is because when I became certified in, in the work of Dr. Brene Brown in 2014, and for those who might not know who she is, she's a, a researcher who has dedicated her professional life into studying shame and connection and vulnerability. And she calls these behaviors the armor. So these are the things that we put on every day and that we go out into the world that we think are protecting us. And she talks about a really small handful of them. I think she mostly talks about perfectionism, um, numbing out, and uh what she calls foreboding joy, what I call catastrophizing. And what I found in doing the work with women is that there were a lot more of these pieces of armor and they were chronic with every single person I worked with, myself included, and they had become a pattern, a norm. And so that's really where the birth of the book came from. And, and again, I think that, and when I would describe it, I would say like, these are the things that, you, that we think are protecting us, but they're actually making us feel like shit because it never feels good to kill yourself in the name of perfectionism. It never feels good to keep saying yes when you want to say no, uh, you know, and you're a people pleaser, et cetera. And really, for those of us that are sober, this is where what we learn is it's that feeling of uncomfortable or feeling like shit that leads us to start to think we need to numb or, you know, you, you drink to comfort yourself and over time you lose other options. You forget that there's other ways to comfort yourself. The only thing you come to crave is a drink. So, so you not only need to get sober, as you said, but recovery is about identifying why do I need comfort all the time? Why am I, how am I living my life in a way that requires constant comfort and these are some of the things that get us there. But also, if we can change those, not only does that help us not pick up a drink, but it also helps us maybe not overeat, not treat other mm-hmm. people badly. Um, there's so many resonating ways that it heals our life. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so some of the things you've talked about, our listeners are familiar with, because it, as you say, like we do hear it again and again from from uh, people that tell their stories, inner critic, imposter syndrome, isolating, like those are some of the real fundamentals of recovery. But some of the other things you dig deeper into um, were eye openers for me. So one of them, you say bracing for catastrophe and Mm -hmm. that um, a lot of us have trouble enduring joy and find that happiness can make us feel really uncomfortable and unsafe. So what is that about? That is about, you know, you said it, it's about joy. And, and Brene actually talks about this in her research and that she found that joy was one of the hardest emotions for people to feel. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. And I've, I've talked to a lot of women about this. And, and in the book I talk about, I gave one of my clients the, the assignment of, of asking a number of people what, you know, people that she, that she knew cared about her, what they love about her, and to sit in that joy of, of drinking in the, the compliments and, and the love that she was getting for people. And it was extremely hard for her. You know, she's an overachiever, a perfectionist. And we are constantly waiting because we know what it feels like to be disappointed. We know what it feels like to be brokenhearted or betrayed or frustrated or have someone not meet our expectations or have us not meet our own expectations. So for us to lean into gratitude and joy, not just happiness, I'm talking about the kind of joy for, for me, it's when I'm sitting at the dining room table and myself and my husband and my two children are, are there and they're just talking about their day. And my daughter squirms around a lot in her seat and is 
smiling and singing all the time. And my son is a little bit more quiet, but he's just the way he is. And, and, and me being quiet and just staring at each one of them. And that is so vulnerable because, you know, in that second breath, I can think like, when is this all going to get taken away from me? Because personally, I know what it feels like to have the rug pulled out from under me. So there's that core belief that's like still lingering around, <laughs> you know, like this could all go away, but it's hearing that voice and knowing that it might come and choosing gratitude instead. That is hard because that is vulnerable. So I think that, um, for the, you know, the women I interviewed where I tell their stories in that particular chapter, they, they live in a pretty constant feeling of, of, you know, when is this all going to fall apart? When is, um, when is my boyfriend going to leave me? When are the, there's one um, woman in there, Rachel, that I talk about, and she feels like, um, you know, all the people at her work are going to, are just humoring her and they're going to, you know, <laughs> figure it, figure her out. And, and it's, it's that feeling of, of leaning into actually, what if, what if this is all just great? What if it's all just awesome and I can lean into this joy just for like 30 seconds? And just be present in it too. I, I find that's powerful. Um, yeah. You know, the way you've set up your book is that you, you sort of point out the behavior and you give examples of it through real life stories of people that you've worked with. And then you sort of have like identifying it and identifying your triggers. And then you have this antidote at the end of each chapter of like, what do you do to to, you know, negate this behavior. And so when I read this chapter on, um, on uh, bracing for catastrophe, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally do that. But I was turning to that last page of what you do about it because I had no idea. And when I saw gratitude is the antidote, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah it is. Like that's it was really, I, it was funny. I felt like I was really reading like a mystery of like, what's going to fix this? <laughs> yeah. You're going to be something yeah. new that I've never heard before. I know. Yeah. So I looked for other remedies too. And I'm like, oh, this is it from research. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, and then another, um, another one of your remedies or antidotes to a behavior was, um, was for the problem of being controlling. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the advice is usually to, you know, let go and accept and self-acceptance and, you know, to like try to deal with the fear that underlies what happens if I don't control everything. But I loved your suggestion and the exercise. It was really uncomfortable as I read it. So I know it hits home for me. And that is the no advice policy. So, uh you say there's no giving of advice to others, either outrightly telling them what they should do or through passive aggressive hints. I'm a queen of yeah. passive hints. So, man, <laughs> that is a very interesting way to look at how to stop controlling because we think of controlling as being what we do. It's all on me. It's all what I do. But you're right. It definitely does lend to want to accept everything else in every else form to what do it. But how does practice of not giving advice in any form help us get healthy? What does that do? Well, I think that it's interesting. In my training as a life coach, one of the things that we were taught is that sometimes it's not about the exercise that you give to someone. It's about what comes up for the client when they are either thinking about doing the exercise or engaging in the exercise. And I believe that this is one of them. So 
when, so for instance, if you are with someone and they are complaining about something and, and you are wanting to give them advice and you, you know, you read my book or you heard us on the podcast and you're like, okay, I am, I am going to try this exercise of not giving advice. I think that's an opportunity for you to think about what is it that you're trying to accomplish by giving this person advice. And yes, the obvious answer might be, well, you're trying to help them. And then I might ask you the question, what do you, like, what do you think might happen if you don't help them? What, what do you think might happen if you didn't give them advice and they tried to do it on their own journey and figure it out themselves? So it's a way for you to dig deeper because most of the time what's happening, like spoiler alert, I'll just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, not always. But most of the time, and I can attest to this, you know, because again, control is my, is my hardest one, is that we feel like we're doing something when we are trying to kind of like put our fingers in somebody else's cookie jar. And, and you might say like, well, I have a value around being of service. And like, I think that's great, but that's not being of service. Like being of service is going and helping at a soup kitchen. Like that's my definition of being of service. <laughs> but I, I think that we are so married to the notion that we know what's best for everyone. And I just, you know, I, I get asked the question sometimes, like if you could give your former self advice, what kind of advice would you give yourself? And I was like, I'm like, not no advice because A, I wouldn't have taken it. And B, I really truly feel like I had to go through everything that I went through in order to be where I am today. If I needed advice from somebody at that time, I asked for it. Like I was not, you know, most people, like if we, if we know someone who has been through it or we know as a mentor of ours, we're going to ask for advice. So I, I just, again, it is a matter of kind of circling back. Think about what is coming up for you when you are trying to give advice. I think one more thing on that. Many times when we are trying to control someone else or giving advice, we are neglecting something in our own lives. So I know for me, this was completely how my life was going. I was so opposed to looking at my own stuff. I wanted to stick my fingers in your stuff because it made me feel like I was important. It made me feel like I was being helpful in some way, but I don't want, I don't want you to point out any of my stuff. God forbid, I want to dig too deep in therapy. You know, it's like I, I was not prepared to take responsibility for my own issues. I think that's an amazing point because, well, first of all, it's an interesting thing coming from someone who's written in the self-help genre. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I wonder then if what you're saying is like, if you're not ready for advice, then you don't take it. Um, and um, so then with a book like this, it really becomes something that you maybe read through and come back to when you're ready to deal with each thing. No one's going to go through and deal with 14 behaviors all in the same week, right? No. <laughs> um, so, but I've, I've shied away a little bit from what you were saying because um, obviously it was uncomfortable for me. I've made that same realization that, you know, if you have that friend who you're always trying to get her to like cut her hair or wear makeup or whatever. It's not about your friend. It's about you, right? It's about how you feel about your association with her, or it's about making yourself more comfortable with what you consider to be her discomfort or whoever yeah. you're trying to fix. So that's, that is really insightful. And, I think it's um, a great example. And I, and I will yeah. say this real quick to your point about, um, I'll tell you something, writing self-help books, is one of those things that will quickly get you to look at your own stuff because <laughs> personally, there is nothing worse 
than laying in bed at night and thinking and knowing that whether you write a blog or whether you have a podcast or, or writing or you're writing self-help books to actually put advice out there into the world and not be following it yourself. There's been many a times where I've like sh- shook my fist at the, at the ceiling and said like, all right, like, ah, this is what I write about. I have to follow my own advice and actually do my own work. So yes, there's nothing worse than feeling like a hypocrite. <laughs> that is so true. It is so true. And, and I, people are kind enough to point it out immediately. If you do it, <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, designer by trade and uh, I used to give talks every year at the local home show is like what colors of the year were coming up mm-hmm. and um, and what was trending out and I so I had like the year that beige kind of went to gray um, mm-hmm. and yellow kind of trended out I remember doing a talk on this and then like a few days later I was at an event and I was wearing a beige suit and someone who had heard my talk came up to me and was like I can't believe you're wearing that you just told us that that." <laughs> Oh, the color no. is not in anymore. Right? She's like, I purposely did not wear my yellow dress. <laughs> so I'm sure it's amplified in that self it is. it is. Oh man. But I love that. And I, I also love what you say about that you you wouldn't go back and give yourself advice. Um I mean advice just really isn't all that helpful um from other people. Sharing perspective is um when someone tells me what worked for them without implying that it's what I should do, I feel like mm-hmm. those are the times when I really learn the most from them, that sort of, you know, especially as women, we're such observers. We, 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 without even knowing it, we are such sponges for absorbing how other people are doing things and what's working for yeah. them. And, and then we tend to mirror it back. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about perfectionism because that is one of my uh, trademarks. In fact, if you go back to, I think, my blog, like my third blog post ever when I was describing, this is back when I was in this um, this un, un- self-aware state of thinking it was really interesting that I had developed an alcohol problem because I felt that I was not typical. And so I wrote this great <laughs> blog post in defense of all the reasons why I was not your typical um, drinker. And I, I thought this was really fascinating. And I, I assumed others would be fascinated. And of course, you can imagine I was very shocked when the Me Too comments started coming. And I was like, what? What? don't say me too. Like I'm special. (laughs) And then eventually the me too comments are what set me free. But um, so perfectionism, you say women wear it as a badge of honor. And I know Mm -hmm. I did. I was really proud of it. I would say, you know, I demand the best of myself and I elevate the performance of everyone around me because I'm demanding and I have high expectations and, Mm -hmm. um, but you really kind of dig at that and, and encourage us to challenge that for the BS that it is. Where do you think we get the idea that there's no other option than to constantly strive? Well, I mean, you want me to go on a feminist rant? I think our culture mm-hmm. <laughs> is a yeah. huge one. I think for some people, for some people, it can come from your family of origin. And I, I highlight some women's stories in that chapter where it's obvious it did come from their mothers and, and fathers. And for others, I know for myself personally, I didn't have parents who particularly pushed me. They didn't, they didn't get angry at me when I brought home a B. They, um, I played, like I mentioned, I played tennis for a long time, but they never, 
pushed me, you know, to go place in tournaments and things like that. It was really more of like fun. If you want to keep doing it, great. We'll keep paying for lessons type of thing. But I didn't come from tiger parents. Um, I was a product of the eighties where that was when sort of, um, it was the Jane Fonda movement and it was, you know, women w- were going back to work and remember they would like wear their tennis shoes and like go, <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. And it was very much like, um, I, I quote actually Courtney E. Martin in the beginning of that chapter. And she wrote a, a really great book called perfect girls, starving daughters. And um, I'm just going to yeah. read it real quick because it's, it's such yeah. a great quote. And I, I, I paraphrase a tiny little bit. She says, yet these perfect girls still feel we could always lose five more pounds. We are the girls with anxiety disorders, filled appointment books, five-year plans. We pride ourselves on getting as little sleep as possible. We drink coffee, a lot of it. We are the daughters of feminists who said, you can be anything. And we heard, you have to be everything. And I remember reading that in her book. And I was like, that was, that was how I grew up. I, I definitely felt like the world was my oyster and I had to accomplish all of it. And I think perfectionism, if you want to go a couple layers deep, is a way for us to feel like we are bulletproof, that we are going to be able to dodge criticism and judgment and failure and shame and all of these painful emotions and experiences as long as we are perfect. And it becomes this never ending cycle because, you know, we can't control how we are perceived. We can't control everything. So inevitably we will quote unquote fail and make mistakes and fall on our faces. And instead of doing things like having self-compassion and reaching out to people who care about us in order to recover and actually processing the feelings that come with all of that hard struggle, we actually try harder the next time. And so it becomes this never ending cycle and I'm tired, you know, like, I don't know about you, (laughs) but I'm 42 and I'm tired. I think that's part of it where I just got to a point where I was like, I can't, I often use the metaphor of like myself and my, the people that come to work with me, especially one-on-one, they have tied a knot at the end of their rope and they're hanging on and their palms are sweating. They are like, I can't keep doing this anymore. And it's a struggle because on one hand, they have a value around excellence. They want, you know, I have one client that says, if I'm going to put my name on it, I'm going to do a damn good job. And I agree with that completely. But like, where do we cross the line into these too high expectations, into no room for failure, into no margin for error? And that's where it starts to get really messy and can really mess with our lives. So that's really in a nutshell what that chapter is about. Yeah, and I I love too that you point out that what we need to get is self-focused instead of other-focused because I'm so guilty of doing this. You know, I'll stand in my closet and I'll change my clothes like, six times and then I start to realize oh I don't think I actually want to go to this event that I'm getting dressed for right now (laughs) and I'm changing my clothes because I'm imagining the criticism or I'm trying to find the armor that's going to make me comfortable to go do this thing that I don't want to do and I realize that then I say well who am I really worried about who who am I afraid I'm going to run into there that's going to think I'm not cool enough this outfit won't do not skinny enough this outfit won't do not um professional enough this out trendy enough like, mm-hmm. yeah right so I'm trying you your to beige like, suit Jean yeah come on <laughs> so I'm uh, and then that's when I that for me that's when I identify that trigger 
It's, mm-hmm. I don't, it's not nearly as bad since I've retired, but I still do it sometimes. And, and it's so symbolic of I'm trying on all these different sets of armor because I'm so focused on what other people are going to think of me. And I was like your client. Um, my business had my name over the door. And so if people criticize the product, whether it was my fault or not, it was my name that was said. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, my, um, you know, it'd be like saying like my um, my sunbeam toaster doesn't work. George, the electrician who didn't wire that toaster right, but you don't blame George. You you blame the brand, and so I really felt the the power of wearing the brand. But for me, healing, changing that has started to make me ask the question, hey, Jean, like it matters what you think, what outfit makes you feel comfortable, or what do I feel good about putting my name on? What what am I willing to stand behind? And that was a revelation for me because I spent my life just like thinking it didn't even matter what I thought. Who cares what I think? Mm-hmm. I want what you want. I want what's yeah. going to keep me safe from your criticism. And um, uh, maybe that's why it is in our 40s and 50s that you start to hear these women say like, you know, since I, since I got older, I don't care so much what other people think. And that doesn't go back to that, um, you know, sociopathic like don't care about the world mentality it really is more about I value my own opinion and that is a scary place to be yeah I do I do want to say though I have I have seen a movement of younger and younger women who are becoming more conscious and I think it's so awesome I have younger clients now than I ever had and I think it's really great that this whole millennial generation is is um so anyone listening out there who is younger you know I I do I think that there's this this consciousness that is um that we're seeing in this next generation which makes me very very happy gives me hope for my eight-year-old daughter that's for sure (laughs) i echo you in that whenever people complain about millennials and and about younger people it drives me nuts i've got three kids in their 20s and um and three sons and there's they all have young women in their lives and i think these kids are amazing like they are so much more comfortable with themselves so much Mm -hmm. more used to being vulnerable and open and they're used to having resources at their fingertips. And so they actually yeah. make use of them. And never like, had, I, yeah, yeah, I think it's amazing. And I'm glad you said that because I, it really irritates me when, when um, older people act as if young people are the problem. And if they would just like be dysfunctional like us, we wouldn't have these problems. <laughs> they would just no, be controlling perfectionists. <laughs> God, they don't need to. No. Oh, man. You make an interesting distinction between self-confident and self-trust. What's the difference between being con- self-confident and having self-trust? I feel like self, and again, this is totally my opinion. And I, cause I've done a lot of work on, on self-trust the last couple of years, really, it has come up a lot for me and, you know, being someone who um, struggled with infidelity, uh, you know, my husband left me for another woman when, when we were married. And, and um, I've been betrayed a lot in my life. I definitely walked away from some relationships having some trust issues. And so self and self-trust came along with that. I didn't trust my own intuition. I didn't trust my own decision making because I felt like I had screwed up so much. And so when I was writing this book, I, I really had to think about and, and ask a lot of people, you know, what is their take on, on self-confidence? And, and what I came up with is that 
self-confidence is something that we, that we believe and that we, we think about. And self-trust is more so something that we feel in our hearts and in our bodies, that, that we truly do trust ourselves enough that whatever decision we're making at that moment, whether or not it quote unquote works out at the end or not, that it was best for us, that there was a lesson to be learned and it was part of our path. Because I know so many times we are just stuck in indecision and I don't know what the right decision is. And I don't know if this is my intuition, you know, people who really struggle with, um, who are, who are just learning how to listen to their bodies and listen to their intuition. I don't know if this is my fear voice or if this is my intuition. And, mm. you know, I don't know, like people ask me that and I'm like, I, I, I can't answer that for you. I can give you some tips on how to, how to do it. But at some point you need to just make a choice and jump and who knows, like whatever is on the other end of that, even if it doesn't work out as you had wanted it to, you will have learned something. You can still be better for it. So that to me is what self-trust is. I love it. And I think that's a great point um, that there is a distinction between the two and they both have yeah. value. They're very, they're, I think they're like sisters, but. Mm-hmm. But you can have one without the other, right? I mean, I'm very I self-confident when I, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, yeah. Um, so as we're talking, I just, I, I hope listeners are getting a sense of the breadth of information that you've touched on here, because I, I really think you did a great job with, with pointing out the things that we do and sort of the nuances of how they affect us. And then you, you wrap up your book by inviting the reader to sort of make themselves a roadmap using their values. And I love that concept because that, that's what I kind of refer to as the, the bubble. I mean, the bubble hour, the name of this podcast isn't about, you know, bubbles in champagne, which sometimes people think it is, it's, it is about creating a safe space for yourself in your head or even physically and, and climbing into it. And um, my therapist one time gave me the same issue of, you know, when you're going into a group of people who are triggering for you because they don't share your values, whether it's because of drinking or they're behaving terribly or they're just not kind, she said, you make yourself a bubble. And you walk into that room in your bubble and inside it are all the things that are important to you. And all of your transactions have to pass through that bubble. So the bad stuff doesn't get in and, and your, your good stuff doesn't leak out. It's the filter that you act through. Mm-hmm. And this really came back to mind as, you, uh, as I read through your chapter on, on values. So tell us how that works. Values, I kind of half joke that it's like the unsexy thing in personal development because a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, don't we just like people don't like what the corporate values are where they work or maybe the values of the religion that they grew up in. But rarely has anyone ever sat down and done values work. And I, I, I you know, sometimes I get the question if there could be just one thing that people work on in personal development and I can't choose between these two. It's like trying to choose between my children. I can't do it. It's self-talk, which is actually the first chapter of my book and, and values. If you can get a handle on those two things, you can handle pretty much anything in your recovery or your personal development journey. So values is about the simple question of knowing what's important about the way you live your life. So what's important about the way you live your life and naming those things, but naming them is really only like 5% of the work. The bulk of it is what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What does it look like if you have a value around integrity and you are at the PTA meeting and one of your acquaintances is gossiping about another mom 
are you going to nod along and gossip because you feel really uncomfortable and you don't want to say anything and you're basically people pleasing when you do that. Another one of the chapters, like, which makes you feel like shit, right? <laughs> Both <laughs> outcomes are scary. That's the thing with values. Both are uncomfortable. Saying something or even excusing yourself from the conversation is uncomfortable and not saying anything and continuing with the conversation is uncomfortable. Which one are you going to choose? That's when the rubber meets the road with values. And, and so it's, it's those kind of scenarios that when I do this work one-on-one with, with my clients is that's what I want them to list out. What are these situations in your life that you've either had happen or you perceive might happen that is going to have you really do the work? And that's hard. That takes a lot of courage. And, and, um, and it really is eye-opening for people when they do this work. Because it is, again, it is asking them to stand in their own power and who they really, truly are. And as someone who has struggled with addictions, we've spent our life running away from that, right? Like, (laughs) that's too uncomfortable. No, I'm just going to go drink because that's better. It's way too uncomfortable. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I just had to, today, before this call, I had to call another mom and um, talk to her about the way her son was treating my son. And that is one of those things of, of um, that was hard. That was honoring my values of, of who I want to be as a parent and who I want to be as a friend. Because I looked to this woman as a friend and I had, to, I had to show up with kindness because I could have been angry and um, defensive, you know, and just there could have been so many different scenarios. So that's what that, I can go on and on because values is, Again, it's, if you know what yours are and you know what they look like, you are way, you're doing great things in the world. And I, and I applaud you. And I feel like this is the part that's maybe the hardest work of all because there isn't a right and wrong. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it's your call. And you really have to get to that point where you trust yourself and yeah. you care what you think Um Rather than I don't know what are the what are the acceptable values you know what what are the ones that are going to make me the best liked you have to get past all of that and um, I'll go back to my designing thing I used to say I I hated oh, I didn't hate challenging to work with customers who were you know accountants or people who were very used to black and white thinking there's a there's an answer and there's a right way there should be a total at the bottom mm-hmm. because when you ask them to pick a paint color they'll want to know which beige is the right beige which one is going to be the right one that looks good and there's sort of this well you kind of have to know what you like um i can tell you what here's three things i think will look good but which one do you like and mm-hmm. they always wanted a right answer and i sort of actually developed a protocol for those kinds of clients where i was i gave oh, wow. them the right answer here's a package for you <laughs> because you just want me to tell you this is right and that's going to be enough for you. But this is the kind of work where no one can hand you that package. It's the mm-hmm. one thing you have to develop internally. And that does take a significant um, level of growth to get there. So it's something that we're never really done with that, are we, Andrea? We, that's something we can work on all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's something that unfortunately we're going to, we get faced with on a pretty much a daily basis is, you know, what are, what are you going to do? And when people do this work, they sit back and think about all the times that they have not followed their values and, and how this ties into all of the behaviors is that when you are engaging in control, when you are engaging in overachieving and perfectionism and self-sabotage, that's never in alignment with your values. Never. Because Mm. your values are at the end of the day, 
how you are proud of how you're showing up. And when you are killing yourself in the name of perfectionism because you want to make sure that all the people at church think that you are a great Christian family, like that's not, that, that doesn't matter to you. At the end of the day, you know, it's about your own integrity or your own courage or your own kindness. It's about you. And I think for many women, that's uncomfortable. Like we're so used to being other focused and focusing on, you know, we've been socially cre- engineered to make sure that everyone around us is comfortable at the expense of our own comfort. And that's mm. what makes me really fired up. Like, that's where I'm like, no, no, no more. Like, I am done with that. Like, get me my soapbox because I'm about to tell y'all <laughs> how much that pisses me off. That's <laughs> what, like, that's my movement in this world is for women to say enough. I'm, I'm done with creating this life where I'm making it for your comfort. And it's about my comfort. And, and a lot of women come to this work and they're like, I don't even know what my own comfort is anymore. I'm so used to doing it for everyone else. And, and really doing like, if you, you can even skip to the values chapter when you get the book and do that first. That's mm. totally fine because that's how important I think that that knowing those are. How do we stop seeing our version of comfort, our own opinion as being selfish? Where, where, when does it cross the line into selfishness? Because I think that's a shame identity that mm-hmm. most women push away from. I think that that's always going to happen. If you have lived your life, and, and this is tricky too, because a lot of people have a value around giving back and being of service. And it truly is theirs. It's not about looking good for other people. Uh, it, it's about, it, it, that really truly makes them feel good and makes them feel proud of who they are. And what I think happens is they take that to an extreme. And what I ask people is, is to, you know, like make, I'm a big fan of making lists, write out what it is that you think that being of service and giving back looks like, and then read that back. And I ask them the question of, okay, did your inner critic make that up? Did, you know, the person that, that is in your head saying, this is what you should do. This is what, um, you know, our culture or society thinks that you should do, or are these things that really do truly matter to you and make you feel good. That is a hard distinction. That's usually not just like a one and done type of thing. But to answer your question more specifically, I think that, oh, that's such a bigger conversation, Jean. Like, I think that we, it, I don't know a woman who hasn't walked away from, from this kind of work and felt like it's selfish or felt guilty for actually honoring her values. This is an uncomfortable exercise because again, we've spent decades doing it another way. So it, it takes unlearning and that's, that can take a long time for people. It's unlearning. And really the first step in this is to be really, truly aware of when you are not honoring your values. That I think can be like the very first, like kind of like pre-work into knowing what your values are and honoring them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I guess, you know, we're almost out of time. So you wrapped it up nicely right there. And I love that idea of starting the book by going to that chapter and doing that first. I just say do it in pencil because you probably will make some tweaks to it as you work through the book. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here. An hour with you always flies by. Um, And uh, I just, I love your book. I highly encourage people to read it and also to check out your website, which is yourkickasslife.com. You've got lots of resources, um, podcasts, and Mm -hmm. you do workshops and worksheets. And yeah, you've got a lot going on over there. Yeah. And and you've been on my podcast. 
So yeah, people can, can do a search for you for your name on my website and find the catch that we do together on I have a recovery series over there too. I have about twenty well no, at this point I have about ten episodes, but we're in the middle of our second season of the recovery series. Yeah, it's fantastic work you're doing and I really appreciate it. Um so where can listeners order your book? So if they go to my website, um, yourkickasslife.com slash, it's the acronym for the book, H-T-S-F-L-S, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. And there is a way for them to pre-order. And I'm also, if someone orders uh, now or a little bit into the month of January, they get access to a free class that I'm doing. And it's actually a book study because this book is so meaty. I didn't, I mean, like, raise your hand if you've been that person who's bought a self-help book and never read it or read it and thought like, oh, that sounds good. And then just like kept going with, you know, all of your (laughs) behaviors. Like I've done it so many times and I didn't want that for this book. So I am guiding people through a four week book study with me. So I'm not just throwing people in a group and saying, you know, support each other, have fun. I'm actually guiding people through. I will answer your questions. I'm going to do Facebook lives in there and the women that come into community with, you know, that love your kick-ass life are always amazing. And um, it's one of my superpowers is creating, um, curating really amazing, supportive groups. And that is all on that page and they can pre-order and, and gain access to that, to that group. And I've, I've actually done uh, one of your online workshops before. It was yeah. um, an email exercise. So we were sent emails every day with exercises to do in them. And I, like, I approached it thinking, I'm going to ace this. <laughs> Like as if I was doing a workshop to get a grade or something, and um, and I was actually really taken aback by the um, the growth that I experienced through it, and then the way it challenged me, and even just the fact that I was able to call myself out on going into it with a little bit of a a good girl attitude, and then right away being able to shift gears and get something deeper out of it was really awesome. So I I really enjoy your work. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, before you go, do you just have any final words of, I won't say advice, but any final words for our listeners? I think maybe just wherever you are on your recovery journey, it is always a journey. I'm, I, I am that person who always says like, please don't put me on a pedestal because we fall down hard when we get put on pedestals. I'm always very honest and open that like I'm on my own path too, and you will forever be on it. And I think, you know, you will have setbacks and those will always teach you if you find yourself like I was in the pantry drinking vanilla extract. (laughs) Um, They're all for your greater good. And I think that um, I just want to say everyone listening that they matter. They matter very, very, very much. Well, with that, I thank you, uh, Andrea Owen, yourkickasslife.com, her new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness. It's available in January 2018. And once again, Andrea, thanks for being here. And to all of our listeners, until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a darkened corner is where shame lies behind 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.